Welcome to Traverse, a Huckberry podcast with myself, Chris Burkhardt, and Charles Post. Our guest today is Christina Mitty Mittermeier, a marine biologist who has pioneered the field of conservation photography. Whether it's images of ocean-dwelling creatures or capturing the complex ecosystems under threat by climate change, her work pushes us to see the depth of our climate emergency. She is the co-founder of Sea Legacy, an organization that works to protect ocean life through the power of storytelling. Her portfolio spans the globe from Arctic to indigenous tribes in the Amazon. It's no surprise that National Geographic has named Mitty as Adventurer of the Year in 2018. And today, we talk about an iconic polar bear image, the idea of enoughness, and why storytelling is important in the fight against climate change. You left the you left the Arctic. You left Scandinavia, dude. When I was leaving, when I, I was just there, right, and and I was there for a month, um, I it was the best Northern Lights I have ever seen in my entire life. Day after day after day, and somebody told me that this year specifically is supposed to just be next level because apparently last year wasn't great. But have you been seeing that? Like, what's it been like for you? You just we, last time, you know, we were here, we were talking about you moving south a little bit. And so you've, you've, you know, realigned yourself in a cabin. Um, like what that what's that been like? And have you seen the northern lights too? just? Yeah, give me the, give me the download friend. I want to know, dude, it's been crazy. So it, we were living at our place in Lofoten for the last almost seven months. We're spending a few weeks further south just during the holidays, and we go back up to our cabin in the Arctic um, mid-January. Northern Lights, though, people think of them as like a winter thing, and certainly winter season, you know better than anybody, that's the time. But we were seeing the Northern Lights like mental across the sky in August, in September. I mean, if, if, if you're listening and you've seen the Northern Lights... You know what we're talking about. If you haven't, go see them because it will redefine what you thought was possible on Earth. And I've never, up until the point that we moved to Lofoten and the Arctic of Norway, I had never really understood what it was like to live and to be surrounded by that 24-7. I mean, but you're from Montana, so, I mean, it's a pretty cool, wild place. I mean, by, by, by U.S. standards, I guess. Yeah, and Montana's its own flavor of epicness. For what I like and what I'm drawn to personally, Lofoten just scratches that itch and more. And so sleep has been the one thing where like all summer, you're kind of like, there's that little voice like, I can't wait for fall where the sun goes down early and I can rest. Cause yeah. Yeah. And and it's funny how you, I feel like you truly tune into that seasonality. You know, I mean, I come from, I'm in California right now, right? It's like I'm wearing shorts. It's December. Um, and, and the seasonality is lost. Right. And all of a sudden I go back to, to Iceland where I'm living part time and I'm like, Oh man, it's winter. Like I want to eat soup and like, like wear some sweatpants and read a book. And I, I, I appreciate that. And you know, what's wild is when there is a nice day, you take full advantage of it. Like I'm out like ski touring or cross country skiing or, or riding my bike or something because I feel inspired. And I, I just, it's a hard thing for me to wrap my head around. Um, but man, it's, uh, you know, it's good to see you. And today is an awesome conversation because just as you spoke on, you know, the importance of wild places, we have Christina Mittemeyer a.k.a. Mitty, one of my favorite photographers who um, is a powerhouse in the field of storytelling and conservation. And um, she has been somebody who's been a 
huge advocate for me and, and just a, a mentor for me, her and her partner, Paul Nicklin. And so I am so stoked to jump in. She is this perfect kind of midway point between you and me because, you know, she ha she's a scientist, but she's also a creative. And this is going to be a rad conversation. And I'm stoked to be able to jump in with Mitty. I'm Charles Post. And I'm Chris Burkhardt. Let's get to it. Christina, this is this is amazing. I I have to say, I mean, definitely my hero. And to have you your face here and to have the opportunity to connect with you is just a is just a dream. So I'm the one in the dream. This is absolutely lovely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's funny when 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 Charles and I were first talking about guests for the show and and who we wanted to talk about your your name came to the top because I feel like you know you really uh, you know have been a an incredible mentor for me, but the way that you've really bridged the gap between storytelling and, and conservation to me has just been incredible. And with that, I think that, I guess selfishly, I've been really intrigued by people who have managed to have these powerhouse careers, um, really influential people, but also managed to have a family. And And to me, you know, as a dad, as somebody who's trying to kind of navigate through this complex kind of environment of raising kids in a crazy world. Um, I've really, I've really loved seeing you kind of <clears throat> have these moments where you're showing you out in the field, your kids are there and, and just, um, that level of transparency that you talk about. And so I guess, you know, I would love to kick it off by just having a bit more of an understanding of like, what was that like early in your career, you're a mom, you've got your kids, you're on location, you're like, hey, don't touch that poisonous plant. <laughs> you know, like, Put that down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was a crazy time, Chris, because it was a long time ago. It's uh, amazing when you take the long view of your career, just how many years I've been doing this. And I was just lucky and blessed that uh, my ex-husband, um, the father of my kids at the time was kind of like in the same field. He's a professional conservationist and an extremely capable naturalist and you know, field biologist. So we would go as a family. And while he was interested in studying the plants and the animals, I was taking pictures. And he, he by trade, he's a primatologist. So he studies the world's monkeys. And wow. we would end up in places like the Amazon or you know, India. And I had the kids with me. And so he would set up, you know, trekking in the bush at four in the morning, waiting, you know, trying to be where the monkeys were before daylight. And oftentimes I just had to stay behind with the kids in the villages or wherever we were staying. And that's where I discovered portraiture and, you know, the incredible advantage that is to have little children in a village where everybody wants to help you, you know, with the kids. <laughs> so. Wow, that's such an interesting point is that is that they almost become this catalyst for, for breaking down the fact that you maybe can't communicate, but from a child's perspective, it doesn't even matter. You know, they want to play with everybody and everybody wants to help you and, and it, it breaks down walls. Yeah. Totally. I would lose track of where the kids were, you know, <laughs> like who has my children in which house, but it, it didn't matter because people were so kind and so welcoming. And I started realizing that if you want to make meaningful, candid, um, portraits of how people live you have to disappear into the walls and my kids were like the first 
my first tool of disappearance. <laughs> I was going to say, when you have kids, I think as a storyteller, you're, you're maybe adjusting the way that you would engage with a, with a topic or a conversation. And I get that, that playfulness, that lightheartedness, that optimism in the way that you communicate as not only a conservationist, but as a, as a storyteller. How did kids inform your approach to, to language, to words, to bringing these images to life? As a parent, and you both will, will totally relate to this, we are fighting for a better planet for our children as much as we're building personal careers. And I realized early on that storytelling is such an incredible tool to help us imagine the future that we want our kids to live in. And my photography became that, just a way of uh, recognizing and realizing just how beautiful our planet is and how special all the creatures that shared with us. And I just wanted it to be a vehicle uh, to imagine a different type of future, you know, one that I actually want to live in. So I, I, in the beginning, I thought, you know, I want to be like a war photographer and show all these, you know, horrible poaching and climate change. And then I thought, you know what, that is um, a way to make your fate destiny <laughs> happen. And I didn't want to do that. So you, you bring up a really interesting point. And it, it's so um, it's so nice to have a fellow photographer on the podcast because I feel like there's so much I can understand and relate to, but you brought up this idea of wanting to be a war photographer. And I remember really vividly, there was a point in my career where that, that was what I desired too. I felt, I felt like the stories I was telling were just, you know, um, <clears throat> I don't know, they weren't very meaningful. And, and I, I actually had watched war photographer, the film, um, and um, I'm I'm totally blanking on his name and who it was about. Natchway, right Jim Natchway. Yeah, not, yeah such, James. And such and a hero. I, yeah, such a hero. And and I just realized after my my second assignment that I gave myself going somewhere that was really, you know, humanity was it was in a state of chaos, and I was trying to kind of do my very best to document. It. I realized that that wasn't for me, and it was really hard to come to terms with that. And and I, I feel like in some way I had a slight reawakening that my my time, my energy was maybe better spent documenting or celebrating rather the, the, the humanity that I did see in the world as opposed to like maybe some of the chaos. And um, because I feel like when you're when you're left documenting the victims of war, it's it's never a pretty sight. And I I applaud what James Notway can do and what he's able to witness. But I. I feel so much um, more empowered to what you said, you know, kind of trying to celebrate what you did see, you know, and, and the beauty around you. So that, that's it's really insightful. Was that something that took time for you to recognize, like to fully come to terms with, I guess, what you are now, um, which, you know, for, for those who do not know, is an incredibly talented documentary and also, you know, wildlife photographer, conservation photographer, because it, it seems like you took a, a, a hard right turn a little bit. You know, I was trapped in the dream that every photographer at some point in our careers are always trapped in. I wanted to work for National Geographic. And I was lucky because I, I had a lot of friends among the editor core of National Geographic, which is such a, a, a great way for a photographer, right, to learn how to curate your own work. They wanted me to shoot editorially. And I honestly tried, I really wanted to, but there's something in me, and I sense that it's the same for you, Chris. Uh, before I'm anything else, I'm an artist. Mm 
And I wanted to make artistic photographs. I wanted to have images that can be published and printed double page and on somebody's wall. And to be a documentary photographer, uh, documenting the horrors of the war on biodiversity or humanity, well, takes you far away from that. So I, I, I had to come to terms with that and say, you know, I'm an artist and I don't want to be an editorial photographer. As an ecologist, as somebody who's passionate about storytelling, stamina is something that I struggle with. You, you look closely at the world, you peel back the onion layers, you engage in a new ecosystem, you travel, you talk to people, and the horrors that you and Chris are talking about in a war setting are maybe more present than ever in an environmental setting and in a social setting amongst the people who live traditionally the old ways. How do you find and tap into that stamina that allows you to wake up, lace up your boots and go and do that work? Because I, f I feel that weight at times where you just want to turn it off and pick something easy, but you don't seem to do that. Oh my God, no, I do. And I, I live with somebody uh, who is as empathetic as I am, and Paul is even more sensitive than I am, Paul Nicklin, my, my partner, husband. And he tends to be somebody that gets depressed, you know, as do some of my children, just the the enormity of what we're facing sometimes can really pummel you to the ground. But I am an optimist and I am a mother and I just don't see any other way. So on the days that I feel that way and I really wish that I didn't care, you know, that I could just eat whatever and buy bottles of plastic and not care like so many people, I just can't allow myself. and. Just like you said, you know, you tighten up your boots and you keep going at it. I am getting tired, though. Is enoughness, that's something you've talked about. You know, you talk about buying plastic bottles and just kind of, you know, like s leaning back into life. Talk to us about enoughness. That's like a big kind of cornerstone of your perspective that I'm sure I and our audience would, would love to, to hear, hear about. Yeah, I mean, what, what I'm trying to say is it would be awesome to not give a damn, you know, to not care. And just to, <laughs> but but once you learn and once you care and understand, you can never go back to not caring. So I don't remember a time in my life when, you know, when I was, wasn't really dedicated to trying to share the love of nature and the importance of protecting it for all humanity. But enoughness was a turning point in my career because I was traveling to these remote communities where people have so little and i'm sure chris you've been to these places as well and even though people don't have the same level of material wealth that that we do there's a sentiment of contentment and belonging and um, generosity and i didn't have a word in english for that and so i just came up with the idea you know these people have enough and they are enough in their communities, and that's a sense of enoughness. But since then, the thinking has really evolved to incorporate some of the lessons that indigenous people share, you know, and this is a universal system of values that almost any indigenous culture shares. You only take what you need and you use everything you take, so you're not wasteful. And the person that is the, the most important person in a village is not the person who has the most, but the person who shares the most. And, and these are values, you know, that, that can be replicated in any human community. And so we try to talk about that. But more recently, enoughness has really brought me to, I mean, thinking into much bigger terms. So 
can I, can I, can I rant a little bit? Can I, can I go Please. <laughs> yeah, this is amazing. I want to, I want to hear you just break out into like another language. Cause I know you speak like four languages. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I have been listening to, you know, these, the, the talk on te- television and you listen to the news and the, the, the theme is always the same. We have to grow the economy and the economy needs to grow at infinitum and, 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 that is impossible on a planet that has finite resources. We cannot pretend that the economy is going to continue growing while we exploit without giving back. And so I started thinking, you know, there's got to be a different way of thinking about the economy. Because if the economy is going like this and it's growing and growing and growing in nature, anything that grows like that is called cancer and it's not so good. So how do we bring the economy back to a sense of enoughness? And I think often, you know, there's 8 billion humans on this planet and we have to share the finite resources of our planet with all the biodiversity, all the other species that share the planet with us. And we are sandwiched between two parameters. The bottom one, the floor, is what's known as the social foundation. And so many people have fallen below the social foundation. They don't have enough food, they don't have enough water, they don't have access to health. And I find that unacceptable. But the upper parameter is the ecological ceiling of our planet. And we have also overshot that already because we have ocean acidification and uh, you know emissions and deforestation and fires. So how do we bring humanity between these two parameters to create a different type of economy? And so I call it the economy of enoughness. And you know, we as storytellers, our job is to help the rest of humanity Imagine a future that's ruled by a completely different set of rules because we seem to be stuck in believing that we have to stay within this infrastructure and this economic theory that we live in. And I would really like to challenge that. It's a beautiful way of looking at the world. And, I, and I'd often say that, um, you know, it's, uh, it's really tricky to me uh, growing up in an environment where when I used to think about... Um, when I used to think about like somebody who was involved in conservation or who was a philanthropist or whatever, it would be like some old white dude with like a khaki hat and a khaki shirt, you know, on safari. Um, but oh, the don't rea- forget the little the rea- rea- Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I just, you know, it's like a, a, a character from Jurassic Park. And I, I realized as I got older and I started using my voice more and I started, you know, again, speaking up for what I cared about, advocating for places. I realized that any person with a phone, any person with it with the means to document, or even without it, if you're if you're sharing a story about a place, you you are an advocate, and you and you are essentially advocating for a place. And in fact, I was with you. I've told this story a ton of times, so I'm sorry. I'm, I just have to tell it. But I was with you and Paul in New York. Um, uh, Paul's gallery that he had for a period of time there. I was lucky enough to have a show there. And I remember there was an opening night and um, there was all these people surrounded there, probably most likely to see you and Paul and, and, and support Sea Legacy. And you. Was awesome. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but it was so funny because Paul said something really interesting and it, it really stuck, struck me. And um, I feel like what you're saying really, it's, it's all, you know, kind of molding into one, but he said like the answer 
to, you know, per, he was talking about Antarctica and he was saying the answer to preserving Antarctica isn't for every single person to go see Antarctica. It's not about everybody jumping on a ship and going down there. He said it's about the right people going down there. And I think at first you could hear that and be like, what does that mean? The right people? Does it mean people who are wealthy? No, what he meant was people willing to open their mouths and share what they're experiencing talk about it. And I think that's so insightful. Like the world needs less tourists and more travelers. And I think as a responsible traveler, you need to be a witness and you need to be a documentarian of what you're experiencing. And you know what? The world's not always a beautiful place. So if what you're experiencing and what you're witnessing is, uh, it concerns you, talk about it advocate for it. You know, we all have our phones. We can, we have a, a communication tool right here. And I just, I think that um, just to kind of parlay into what you are saying, it's such a beautiful sentiment to think about um, what it, I, I constantly ask myself that, am I, am I the right person? Like, am I, am I the right kind of person to support this environment? And I, I really love what you're saying, because it really speaks to the idea of, of being a witness and kind of understanding that maybe what you're witnessing isn't always the, the perfection and beauty of the world. Sometimes it's about acknowledging um, uh, some of the chaos, too. So true. That's how the concept of conservation photography was born, Chris. I was attending all these photography conferences where nature photographers, you know, mostly middle-aged white men <laughs> would gather to talk about photography. And what they wanted to talk about was filters and the latest place where you could go and photograph X or Z. And I would raise my hand and I would say, can we use our images to try to protect the places and the species that we photograph? I mean, mind you, this is the 1980s, no, the 2000, the beginning of the 2000s, sorry. And I would be told to sit down, you know, environmentalism was too polarizing and this is not what we do. But I started noticing that there were a handful of photographers, uh, some of them the best photographers of our generation, people like Joel Sartori or Nick Nichols or even Paul Necklin, that were taking photographs and then they were using those photographs to advocate for the protection of species or places. And I thought, well, you know what, these, these guys are not just nature photographers, they're conservation photographers. And that's how that term came to be. That's so cool. One of the things about photography that really resonates from a science perspective is when I was a young field scientist and you would join a new research crew or you know, you're a lab tech and you're entering a new ecosystem for the first time, photography was really the vehicle that was used to support the data, right? You go to any science conference and photography is a big part of it. And it was at that time, compelling to pick up a camera and start saying, how can we document? How can we use these images to really talk about an ecosystem? And I think one of the things that you've done, Christina, that is so powerful is not just using your camera to highlight ecosystems and wildlife, but also the people that are guardians of these places. 5% of the world's population are indigenous, and yet 80% of the world's biodiversity exists in these places. And so I would love to hear a little bit about that because even when, I mean, I'm 34, when I was in graduate school, wilderness was talked about through the lens of this place devoid of people. And yet the places that truly house biodiversity are filled with people. Yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. There's 400 million indigenous people on the planet and they're the largest minority that exists today. And they are the stewards, the guardians of about 80% of the biodiversity that's left. They are the last people on this planet that still 
understand how the operating system of planet Earth works. And it's easy to dismiss it and to laugh it off and to call them, you know, uh, kitschy. And um, it's not. Uh, these are people who have lived with the environment very closely for millennia. And they understand things about it that we don't. But it's not just to know what the ebb and flow of the seasons is. It's also to share these values because for indigenous people the sign of a wealthy economy is not one that grows at infinitum but one that supports everybody one that doesn't leave anybody behind and when they're asking us to rethink the economic value system that has left so much of humanity behind they're just asking us to rethink uh, how much time we're spending in nurturing relationships and how, how do we define strength and power that's not in military terms, but in making sure that everybody is part of success and not just a handful of people? Yeah, I really like what you said, Charles, too, um, and, and just <clears throat> kind of bringing it together. You know, probably an unpopular opinion, but it's a very colonial view to think that, you know, wilderness only exists in places where humans aren't. It's just that if you if you speak and you acknowledge a lot of the indigenous teachings, you realize that 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 was never a mindset that they had. They just they they tried to live with the land in a way that was um, not inflammatory towards it. It was never a matter of setting aside this place for just to observe. It's not you know. And nowadays we do that. You know, we set aside these places to just observe them, almost because we just lack the skills and we lack, we lack the ability to to not affect them and or to 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 degrade them, right? And it's a it's a funny thing how the world is is evolving in that way. And I just I, I, I have to say it's so interesting what you touched on earlier about I don't think people fully realize that that your generation and the generation before you, these were the first people, the first people who ever used photography as a means of telling stories and advocating for environments. If you look at the work of Ansel Adams, which everybody knows, you know, during that time with, with him and, and the F64 group, they were fighting, literally fighting with the arts, with the arts community for photography to be recognized as art. Because before that, it was purely documentary. You would only use a photograph in war to document like the war. It was created for war. And it's so wild to me to realize that most people, they don't even fully comprehend that it's only from that generation forward. To me, it's still such an exciting time because photography still is like, it's in its infancy to me. And, and I just, I love the way you talked about it. You know, Chris, there's something very profound that occurred to me the other day because I was um, listening to a panel of photographers talk about NFTs and the incredible horizon that's open now to creators, right? You can now uh, really monetize photography as an art form. But these photographers were just thinking about themselves. You know, how do I make money for my photography? And this is going to be good for me. And I was thinking anybody, like the difference between a craftsman and an artist is that art is a language that's trying to say something, not just trying to make money. And the ultimate, uh, the ultimate award for a photographer is to be collected in a museum because your work has transcended that, you know, that profit mindset to say something about the world we live in. And, and so I agree with you. We are in a very, very special time of the history of photography. 
And I'm now old enough to be part of a generation of photographers who is, I mean, I, I still think that I'm breaking ground uh, in, in the, in, just in the philosophy of how we think about these things. Well, and I think that it, in the truth of the matter is, is like, it takes time for ideas to mature. It really, it really does. Like I, I often tell people that nowadays that I, I almost feel bad when a young photographer or a young creative picks up a camera and they compare themselves to everybody, you know, like yourself, like Paul, who, who has a legacy, a lifetime. Like I know full well that the first time Paul picked up a camera, he, and you picked up a camera and Joel picked up a camera and David McLean picked up a camera. It wasn't like, I'm going to use this camera to save the rhinos. It was, it was an expression of art and you did it because it felt good. And you did it because you're either, you know, a, a mom at the village wanting to like find a sense of humanity. It, I think it should always come from a place of beauty and love and, and joy. And then all of a sudden what happens is there's a there's a light that turns on and you realize like wow my voice my thoughts my intentions they can transform into this tool that can actually help advocate and and i just i guess what i'm saying is like you paint a really beautiful picture of how you kind of can evolve into an environmentalist or somebody who cares about these things but your artwork still seems to have a separation like i can tell that you do it for you and it just so happens that what you love and you care about is is a reflection of that. Not like you only use the camera as a tool to to preserve the planet, you know. But but it's the same for you, Chris, because I look at your photographs and the first thing I see is just how artistic they are. How you wait and you're willing to wait for the right light, the right moment. And, and you probably are visualizing, you know, where a person will be sitting within an, an environment to express something. So you're not just snapping shots, you're making art. And I operate very much the same way, you know. I'm looking for a color palette, I'm looking for a gesture, and it takes a long time. More after the break, stay with us. So what you're talking about and what I hear is a reminder of, of our approach to food, right? Like the slow food movement is this departure from fast food. And I think one of the things that Andy Goldsworthy, an art fellow artist, talks about is shaking hands with the place. And in order to do that, it takes time. And just like Chris spending time in the Arctic and Lofoten and places like that, Christina, you also need to slow down to a point at which you can start to see rather than look, right? You need to train your eyes to see the magic of a place. Could you talk a little bit about slowing down? I think our culture is so addicted to speed, getting somewhere quickly, building your career quickly, how can I get there overnight? But I think to be effective at storytelling, at reading ecosystems, understanding people, maybe who have trust issues with outsiders, slowness is probably your best friend. Oh, you know, it takes time, especially when you're photographing people that live in remote places. You cannot just cowboy in, you know, parachute with your camera and start snapping shots. It takes a lot of time to build a trust uh, for people to forget that you're even there and for them to trust that whatever you're doing is not exploitative, it's not colonial, and it's not, um, you know, 
an act of greed, but an act of generosity instead. And it takes time, you know, I'm the last few months have been really interesting because Paul and I have been forced to slow down. Paul's mother was diagnosed with a brain tumor that pinned us home. You know, we we were in this mindset in the Gerber's wheel of we have to get to the next expedition, the next assignment. And so we took our, our truck and we packed it with all the camera gear while his mom was still sick. And we made it one third of the way. And then we stopped and we said, what are we doing? You know, let's go home and let's be with her. And we were there until she passed away. And that slowing down of several months of just, you know, being a part of life and death, which is very important, kind of like reframes what is it that we're doing. And I think both Paul and I emerged from the death of his mother, who was beloved, uh, with a re a recommitment, a bigger commitment, and just this hunger and desire to go and make art again. And so for me, you know, I want to get back to the portraiture. Like I've enjoyed the last 10 years of underwater photography and telling the story of the ocean. But this story of humanity and indigenous knowledge is one that is so important to me that I've actually, you know, already started thinking about three or four trips this year alone just to go and revisit some places where hopefully people still remember me. I don't think there's going to be any problem with that, Christina. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you are you are a powerhouse in in the world of creativity, and I, and I have to say, I mean, I'm not <clears throat> I'm not here to 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 you know start up a big conversation around gender norms, but I do feel like there is a softness to your work, and there is a quietness to your work that I. I cannot find because I am, I am that type A, you know, I, I often cowboy in <laughs> and I'm like, I'll figure it out later. And I, and I just love, I love when I see a, a perspective of the world. And I think as an artist, it becomes a little bit easier to start to recognize it. I see a perspective of the world that is so foreign to my own that I'm like, how did this person capture this moment? Because it took, it took seeing things in a different way. And I, I feel like, it's because of those beautiful life experiences you've had raising kids and, and being in this environment that where you see the world in such a such a special way. And to me, that's really helpful. And I and I kind of I kind of feel like you have leaned into that. And I think sometimes um, maybe younger creatives are kind of trying to be like, I can do it all, I can do everything, you know, I've gotta this is what they expect. And I I often try to urge um, people to be like, no, you know, you can play to your strengths, and I, and I think you've really done that. And I, I, I do, f I do see a lot of that in your work. It's really, it's really amazing. Was was there a was there a time period that, yeah, did that kind of like pop out to you at a at a moment like your style, the definitiveness of of your look and take on the world? You were a young photographer starting your career as well, and you know how competitive it is and how sharp the elbows of other photographers can be. And I felt myself getting caught into that competition. And, and, and then something really interesting happened. I realized that of the two greatest handicaps of my life, which are uh, being a woman and being Mexican, the latter one, being a woman is way harder. <laughs> so, um, so I decided to use my gender and the fem feminine, you know, culture that comes with it to my advantage. And I almost use it as a superpower because this is who I am. And when I mentor and teach young female photographers, 
I tell them the same, you know, don't try to compete with the boys in boys terms, you know, you are who you are. So use what's in you to make your art stronger. And for me, that's really important, you know, that quietness you talk about. Um, I'm trying to build a bridge of empathy that that hopefully helps other people understand that the creatures that are traveling with us on planet Earth have, you know, spirits and sentiments and emotions and pain and and that we need them. You know, we need them to survive on this planet. And so how do you, how do you convey that in a photograph? Well, and I think wildlife are so good at mirroring the energy you bring into a situation. Whether you're on a horse, Chris, you know all about that, or Christina, whether you're interacting with a wild animal, right? I'm sure in interactions, you quickly learn what you can and cannot do and what quietness really means and how that comes to life in a natural setting. So maybe talk a little bit about these, these wildlife like educators. Entering a conversation with a wild creature demands that you have a calm energy because you're absolutely right. Animals do pick up on your energy. And if you try to chase an animal with your camera, it will outrun you very quickly. <laughs> or worse yet, it will turn or around and you. chase you away. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it takes an enormous amount of patience to sit somewhere for a long time and wait for animals to come to you or to relax in your presence. And you just have to be willing to to do that and when you enter a natural environment you are signing a tacit agreement that say that now you are part of the food chain <laughs> and if the headline ends up, ends up being really bad on your fate you know that's so be it. Um, it yeah we cannot enter a wildlife conversation with a conquest mindset so you talk about being in the food chain when you enter these wildlife interactions you take a picture of a of an emaciated polar bear. You're entering the food chain, but you're also part of, in some cases, a drama that's unfolding. And I think as a photographer or as a scientist that's documenting or studying an ecosystem or an, or an organism, there's a fine line between being a passive observer and being a participant. And in today's world, if we look closely at nature, I think we are more often than not being pulled into that place where our heart says be a participant because we're seeing things that are tragic. Whether it's an animal that has plastic around its neck or whether it's an emaciated animal or whether it's some sort of situation that has a, a human element, right? Like we feel because we're part of that species that we're part of the problem. How do you navigate that, that fine line that has emotion involved, and then also ethics, right? Ethics as a photographer and an observer. Yeah, you know, this is something that many war photographers struggle with. And James Natchway, we were talking about him earlier, talks about that when he lectures. Um, as a human, your instinct is to put the camera down and help whatever the situation is. As a photographer who also happens to be an environmental activist, the job really is to stay with the camera and stay with a with a frame that you're making to tell that story because otherwise you are not doing your job. And it's a struggle, it's tremendous. You know, the starving polar bear is a perfect example, Charles, because after we published that photograph, 
regardless of the circumstances that kill that animal, because it's questionable, right? We don't know if it was because of climate change and he couldn't hunt or if he had been hit by a hunter and just couldn't hunt. We don't know. Either way, people were asking questions like, why didn't you feed the bear? And you're like, because it's a polar bear, you know? <laughs> I don't carry 40 pounds of steel in my backpack. You know, can't feed it. But people were really upset that we hadn't taken it to the vet because you're in the middle of nowhere in the Arctic and you surely can put it in your in your backseat. I mean, it's it's almost it's very difficult to make that decision at the moment. I remember photographing a pod of sperm whales, and they're beautiful material matriarchal societies. So you have them all; they're rubbing with each other and they're playing, and they have the young ones, and it's just a beautiful thing to watch. And all of a sudden I see one of them has something in its mouth. And I remember coming up to the surface and yelling at Paul, it's got like it's entangled, it's got a rope. And when I put my head back in the water, the whale goes and it spits out a piece of rope that he was playing with. <laughs> and I, I felt kind of silly, you know, I'm like, you know, animals need our help for sure. And maybe sometimes the better help that we can give them is to tell their story. Yeah. I mean, you, you bring up a beautiful point, an eloquently said point that like, it is much more complicated than the photographs often show. And I, I remember when that image came out, the image of the polar bear emaciated. Again, that message is tricky because it can be swayed in so many directions. It could be all about climate change, or it could be all about anti-hunting, or it, it could be all about a lot of things. But overall, I think the beauty of being a photographer is that oftentimes you can put something in front of people without your opinion and just allow them to form their own opinion. And I, you know, I, I have to say it's so tough, the position that you are put in sometimes because people think, I mean, I, I think that people just, they think that all you do is get praised and everything's great, but, but you guys are constantly dealing with governments. You're dealing with opinions and people and unsolicited ones. And at times it feels like you cannot do anything right for you guys to share those images that took courage. You and Paul both knew you were going to receive backlash because people just didn't understand. Yeah. The perspective. And you know what, what, what could you do? What it, it, you're not trained to, to take a bear and, and put it through a rehabilitation cycle. And even if you did, what happens? That bear then has to get put down eventually because you cannot feed an animal. So the best you could do is document it to show people what's going on. And I, I just think there's, there's some real courage there. And I, and I applaud you for that. And I know that um, it's something that most people just will never fully comprehend, you know? No, or forgive you for, but regardless, you know, we, we carry on because this is, this is the job. You know, photography is taking a moment that is inherent, naturally comes out of context, right? You're pulling this, this frame, this, this just seconds of time out of this bigger moving matrix of dramas and dynamics and it's a system. So how, how do you, you know, you're not just taking a picture, you're, you're an advocate as well. How do you balance that, that polar bear shot with the breath that you want to share about the system, about the population, about, you know, what's, what's possibly driving this moment to exist in the first place? Well, I think with, with any image, you're absolutely right. As photographers, we are the architects of what our viewer is going to see. 
And, and for me, the, the camera is almost like this uh, metaphorical, it's like a membrane, like <laughs> an osmosis membrane that allows a conversation between me as a photographer trying to say something and the person on the other side that's looking at it. And it's a conversation, right? But um, you have a tremendous responsibility for what is it that you're showing? Because how often, you know, you move your camera just a couple of centimeters and you frame the situation in a very different way. And it's a big responsibility. So I, I think building your credibility with honesty and authenticity to, so that whatever you say is actually um, contextualize is very important. I think sometimes nowadays people think that the first step is to get a camera and then the second step is to figure out how to use it when really I think being empowered with, with not only credentials but with, with education, what, what do you care about? What do you want to advocate for? What do you, what do you intend to, to want to share? You know, having that um, education around what you do. You know, I, I, I trust I trust your opinion a lot more than I trust mine, you know, just, just because my view of my view of the world has been really narrow. You know, I, I, I do look to people that I really care about. And so credibility is a huge thing, especially when sharing those images, but I, I'd love to have you just give us a little insight to see to legacy, the origins of it, and maybe where you guys are at now and, and what, what you're currently working on. Sure. Um, see legacy was, uh, born out of, my desire and Paul's desire to do more with our photography and our storytelling than just shoot for National Geographic magazine. Uh, magazine is great, National Geographic is amazing, but the follow-up on conservation, as you know, Charles, that's where the action takes place. And for me, empowering champions, the people on the ground, the scientists, the indigenous leaders, the you know community organizers that are actually making things happen, that's what the power of photography really can do, to, to shine a light, to raise money, to uh, create public support for certain things. And so Sea Legacy was just um, an, an opportunity for storytelling to move the needle in conservation when it comes to the ocean. So the ocean, of course, is the largest and the most influential ecosystem on our planet. It's responsible for so much of the life that exists on planet Earth, right? From the oxygen we breathe to the vast majority of biodiversity live in the ocean. And yet, of all the sustainable development goals, is the most underfunded. So, uh, you know, can we use our storytelling to make it more of an imperative for philanthropy and for corporations and countries to invest more in the ocean? It's not just the stories, but the network of individuals that we have met throughout our lives and our travels that you can call a prime minister or you can call a minister and use the photography to convene a conversation, to bring people around the table and change their mindset. So so tell me this, because I, I know you guys have had huge successes. You've had, um, you know, you, you fought some, you know, hard battles as well. Like what, what would you consider a win for either Sea Legacy or the ocean? Like, and then I guess I would love to know what, um, what determines, you know, because I know you guys are you guys are in the Arctic and then you're in the Caribbean and and then you're in like you know Africa. Where where how does the process of determining like okay we're going to take on this assignment? Um, how does that happen? There's so much 
stuff happening in the world that sometimes we're like, where do you focus your attention? And I think you and Paul are masters at realizing where you can make a difference, you know? Yes. Well, I mean, thank goodness that we're both scientists. So I spend a lot of time reading the scientific literature to inform what we should be doing. And I think I'm one of the few photographers that still attends these big, big conferences like, uh, you know, the one that's happening now. So a couple of years ago, Chris, I was reading the, uh, the journal Science and I came up on a, a, a new paper and it was written by some of my favorite ocean scientists led by a gentleman named uh, Carlos Duarte. But it was the title of the paper that caught my attention. It was Rebuilding Marine Life in a Single Generation. It was basically a how-to-do-it recipe. And so I started reading and these scientists came up with um, what they call six wedges, if you imagine a pie, uh, of actions that we need to take and we need to take them simultaneously. And I'm just gonna parrot these out very quickly. We need to create more marine protected areas. We need to protect more species like sharks and whales. We need to stop the flow of pollution into the ocean. We need to rethink fisheries and how do we extract protein from the ocean. We need to restore the habitats that have been destroyed, like coral reefs and mangroves. And we need to recast the ocean as a solution to climate change. And then I came up with a seventh wedge and I said, you know what, we need to do all of this while achieving equity and justice for coastal communities. So that framework is how we decide which stories we tell. And it, it, you know, at the end of the year, it's a way of cataloging how much have we pushed the agenda on each of the wedges by working with other organizations that are you know, specifically focused on one or more. These things take a long time and it takes many organizations, many individuals, and all that Sea Legacy is doing is creating the narrative around it and bringing along the public in a way that's understandable and that people feel like they are participating in something amazing because we need them to keep participating. So, you know, part of the of the big challenge with environmental work is just the lack of funding. Like I was saying earlier, uh, sustainable development goal number 14, according to the United Nations, requires $174 billion a year for activities to create these MPAs and these pieces and all that stuff. And at the moment, we only have $25 billion. So where's the rest of the money gonna come from? So at Sea Legacy, we are, we're convening, we're calling this 100 for the Ocean, and we're convening 100 of our favorite photographers, yourself included, Chris, to donate 100 prints so that we can, uh, you know, donate to 100% uh, of the profits to conservation efforts in the front line. So this is gonna be next year. I'm super excited because our goal is to raise $2 million for ocean conservation. Um, and, uh, you know, we want people like you to be part of it. And and uh, you you also just touch on such a such an awesome part of it. Like I I um, I love the fact that as a photographer you can use art to then celebrate what you love. It can hang in someone's home, and then that money can go to a myriad of different causes. You know, it's not just to pad our wallets, but but so often I feel like half of the art that I either give away or sell is going to a charitable cause or going to you know helping you know, franchise youth and communities to support them. It's, it's such a validating thing to, yeah, to use what we love to, to support others. And I, you know, sadly, I'm not the person who can go up and, you know, 
you know, eloquently speak at Congress, but but I can use what I what I'm good at, and I, I just I love seeing other artists do that. And you have been a great example of how to do that. That's been really amazing. Well, thank you, Chris. Well, you are a beloved artist, and and you have a tremendous following of people that love everything you do. And I'm so always so touched by how you use your voice, your talent, your work to to touch just, people. Just learning, just learning. You know, continually learning process. <laughs> make, make, and, make the yeah. planet a better place place, right? What else can we do? Try. Try. Yeah. What are a few things that you can you can share with an audience that's maybe looking to be a part of the groundswell, to to be engaged, to be a solution? Right? There's so much out there. There's so many tools and tips and here's five things you can do to reduce your footprint. Like what's what's your take? Because I'm sure it's a it's a special one. Well, I, um, I I had the fortune or misfortune of having dinner once with Elon Musk. And he was going on and on about, you know, his spaceship to take people to Mars. And I was saying, you know, I, first of all, I don't want to go. <laughs> I haven't received a, a ticket. But I'm, but I'm sure that if, if I was invited to go with Elon to Mars, we would step on a spaceship and we would receive an incredible briefing for how every system on that spaceship works. Because it's going to carry us across the universe, you know, for who knows how long. And everything we have and everything we need needs to be in that spaceship. And I was thinking, you know, we are living on a spaceship. It's called Earth and it's much bigger. But it has everything we need and everything that humanity has ever needed or will ever need. And we don't understand the first thing about it, Charles. It's uh, If you were to open the hood of Spaceship Earth, it would all be salt water. It would be the ocean. That's the engine of life on this planet. And so through our social media, through Sea Legacy, and through our very vast network of contributors and influencers and ambassadors, we try to share a tidbit of how planet Earth works every day and to do it in a way that is not, you know, highbrow elitist scientists, but through photography, because photography is a language that we all speak. You know, we all carry a device that makes us experts. And so just try to understand, you know, that you shouldn't be destroying things that you might need later. And that may be a generation or two later <laughs> to have that wisdom, I suppose. Yeah, right? And no matter where you are, you're breathing in this ocean's exhale, even if you're in the middle of Africa or you're in the middle of the U.S. and you've never even seen the ocean. So how does it work, right? I mean, understanding, how does it work? Because, you know, I remember when I started thinking about all these things, Charles, having to kind of like go back to biology 101 and how the carbon cycle works. <laughs> I was like, so how did that work again? When you realize that everything that's alive today and everything that has ever lived on this planet is largely made out of carbon. And, you know, a lot of it is buried deep in the ground and we are exploiting it now for fuel, these fossil fuels, you know, ones where animals and plants. And we have a carbon problem on this planet. We have too much carbon in the atmosphere. And I have a, a friend who is an economist, Dr. Raf Shami, and he was explaining to me, he said, um, imagine that all the carbon in the world is contained in, in this glass. And we have to do two things and we have to do them at the same time. We need to turn the tap off and that's, you know, reducing emissions. And that's where 90% of the conversation is today. But the other thing is we have to drain the top. And the biggest solution that we have for decarbonizing the atmosphere are the living ecosystems, especially the ocean, the Amazon, of course, but how the ocean works and how it produces that oxygen 
people imagine that it's all mangroves and you know seagrass beds and a lot of it is but the vast majority is is microscopic it's phytoplankton it's these enormous pastures that are invisible but that's where that exhalation of oxygen is coming from and those pastures are so delicate because the ocean is becoming more acidic the more carbon there is in the atmosphere and it's difficult for plankton to survive so there it is you know disappearing silently and dying quietly without us knowing and endangering the future of life on earth so wow that's so and some of those plankton are so small millions can fit in a single Tiny. drop of water like the most Tiny. abundant of those species They're bacteria it's, yeah yeah unreal I think you've done a beautiful job at, at starting the conversation for so many years. I'm just, I, I loved your analogy of the ocean, you know, being the engine of Earth. Like, I feel like I want to see that on like a bumper sticker on the back of a car um, because it, it, it really strikes me and, and opens my eyes. And, um, you know, this conversation has been enlightening. I'm so grateful for you, Christina. I'm so grateful for the mentorship that you've provided for so many. Um, and, and especially for uh, the inspiration to hopefully so many young gals to get into this space. The, the world needs more talented female photographers and it needs to celebrate them and see their work. And I know you're a huge advocate for that. And if there's a, I'd love to give you an opportunity if there's like a shout out at the end of this, you wanna say like, you know, telling people to, to check out Sea Legacy, to check out work, give, feel free to just... I'm uh, exploding know. with excitement, and I'll tell you why, because for <laughs> years, Sea Legacy has been inviting our followers to be monthly investors in the future of our planet through storytelling. So people that join the tide help us turn the tide. You know, their money goes to the storytelling, but it's also reinvested in some of these solutions. And we're about to launch a new version of the Tide that's so exciting. So the goal is going to be to get 1 billion people to donate a dollar a month so that we can create the first super philanthropist. You know, who needs Jeff Bezos when, when we have a billion people that are super excited? And we're doing this uh, with, in a partnership with a, an organization called the Dollar Donation Club. Uh, that I love so much because they are reinvesting the money into uh, you know, stopping plastic from entering the ocean through rivers. And we're going to be supporting the coral gardeners in our first um, effort together. So I just want to invite everybody to go to sealegacy.org and join the tide. And be. You know, my dream is for us to be on the cover of Time magazine as the first collective super philanthropist to save our planet. I love I love that. That is awesome. And, and I, you, you just spot on right there, like something that's so tangible, we can see the work that they're doing. It's, it's so transparent, which is awesome too. Um, and, and just huge. And I'll be, I'll be signing up. That's for sure. And, um, Chris Burkhardt, let's turn awesome the tide. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that was an awesome conversation. Thank you, Christina. What a, what a day. Uh, thank you, Killer. Charles. You are such a wonderful human being. Uh, your body was built to carry your big brain. And Chris, you are one of the most <laughs> sensitive men I've ever met. Your body is just built there to carry your heart. Thank you so much to both of you. And um, thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, this has been such a treat. Thank you, Christina. Cheers. Thank you. So, Mitty, wow. that was that, sick. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, that was unreal. I mean, just yeah. dropping wisdom. Left and right. She, um, for me, for a long time, 
has been such a, I don't know, such a mentor, I guess. And, and I, I didn't really know how to like articulate that to her because, um, you know, it was probably a couple years ago that I actually got to, to, you know, as I mentioned in the convo, be at a gallery event with, with her and Paul and just see the immensity of their work, the immensity of, um, of that influence they have on other people. And I, man, that takeaway that the enoughness thing, like when she talked about that, I was like, that is such a cool word. It's such a cool concept, right? If you read some of the things she's written about it, you hear some of the talks she's given on it, you know, what, to me, it really comes back to community and coming at all of this from the lens of an ecologist, from the lens of a conservationist, we can't succeed unless we're part of something bigger. And I think enoughness really drills down to that and it invites you in. And, and, and I know you talked about this, uh, you know, in the conversation, right? Like her, her imagery does that. It invites you into these narratives. Right. Right. And, and I, and I, I think that it can't be stated enough, you know, that like you, you see, um, when I look at her, such an example, right? Like she talks about her career. It wasn't like she started her career being like, when am I going to make it? You know, like there's a level of patience that you see specifically in wildlife photographers, her, Paul, Joel, Sartor, everything like whether they, it's, 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 like a saint, you know, it's like a saintly amount of patience. And I think that just that takeaway of like when, when photographing wildlife, you really have to bring, you know, that chill attitude. Um, and I, and I, and I, I reflects in her relationships and in her interactions. And just the way she carries herself. I mean, she's not coming at a hundred miles an hour. She's coming in with a level of openness, a level of observation. And I think you're right. It's wildlife photography demands that, but I think any time you're a true student of something, whether it's music or whether it's making your own uh, photography in a dark room, whether you're a writer, whether you're a naturalist, it's the slow approach that I think really produces that fruit of your labor that will allow you to excel. And I think in our modern world, we're so often, especially younger people, are so often led to believe that you can do these things quickly. And I think she's such a a potent reminder that that slowness is actually the way to go. Yeah, well, and and finding out what you're good at and and using it as a way to be an advocate. I think that you you just nailed it on the head. Her message of like she didn't give up being a scientist to be a photographer. In fact, she found a way to do both. And and you can often enmesh what you love with a creative pursuit to, to really make it blossom. I mean, to me, that's where the most creativity exists is when you can find a way to combine both those things. And I mean, that was just an awesome conversation. I, I, I was stoked. She's a hero of mine from the day one that you and I started, you know, traverse. I was like, we need to have Christina on. Cause I felt like she does bridge the gap between you and me, <laughs> which is awesome. So no, and she's been one of my heroes. I mean, I didn't share this in the podcast, but you know, I was in a PhD program, left early with a master's degree, and a big part of that was looking to her and Paul as examples of people who had transcended that academic kind of ladder of progression. And I'd said, you know what, I can do this and storytell. I can do this and act, be an activist. And so she offers so much, and I'm sure our listeners are going to not only walk away with just a bunch of wisdom to chew on, but also some really tangible things they can do to be a part of the conversation. That's it. I mean, that, that, that was the conversation. So dude, good to see you. Awesome. Yeah. Once again, that was incredible until next time. Yeah. 
The Traverse is a Huckberry production in collaboration with Chris Burkhard, Charles Post, and Duct Tape, then Beer. From Huckberry, Andy Forch, Richard Greiner, and Ben O'Mara are executive producers. Mike Idell and John Desbury are senior producers. Matt Marr, Benjamin Rawls, Aaron Parra, and Willis Smith provided additional production help. From Duct Tape, then Beer, Becca Cahal and Fitz Cahal are executive producers. Evan Phillips is the senior producer. Music by Greg Jong and Graham Barton. Until next time, see you out there.